you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Start in Luke this morning. We are working through the book of Mark. Started last week and did an overview of the entire book. And we saw that Jesus is our authority in, in all things. And that we must submit to our authority. We'll see that as the passage or this book unfolds for us. Luke chapter 7. suppose I need to turn there too. Let me begin reading for you verse 24. When the messengers of John, that is the Baptist, had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury and are found in royal palaces? But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. This was Jesus talking there. And then let me ask you to turn to Mark chapter 1. What is greatness? What is greatness? What do you think of when you think of greatness? What do you suppose our world thinks of when they consider the, the idea of greatness? Well, there's lots of different things that we could answer for that question, but one of the most entertaining things that I think our world has with regard to greatness is the Guinness Book of World Records. If you're like me, you like to just see what kind of silly things people do to, in order to get their name put down in a book so that they can be determined great in some way, the best at something. One thing that I saw that was pretty interesting was the fastest time to run 100 meters barefoot on ice. That would be pretty entertaining to watch. Apparently some guy did it in 17.35 seconds. I don't even know if I could do that with shoes on on the ground. But this, uh, The next one I thought was interesting was the longest recorded duration for balancing on one foot. Uh, this guy, Suresh Joachim in Sri Lanka, did it in 1997, stood on one foot for 76 hours and 40 minutes. How many of you could do that with two feet? <laughs> I don't think I could. Um, I need a break. Longest pogo stick jumping. Uh, Ashrita Furman, uh, 23.11 miles, almost a marathon on a pogo stick. The greatest distance walked by a person continuously balancing a milk bottle on his head. Who thinks up these things? 81 miles. 81 miles. Took him 20, almost 24 hours to walk that long. People got a lot of time in their hands, don't they? Um, this one I think is pretty interesting. Most books typed backwards. Okay, apparently this guy used a computer and four blank keyboards without looking at the screen uh, this guy's from Italy, typed 67 books backwards in their original languages, in, including the Odyssey, Macbeth, the Latin Vulgate Bible, the Guinness Book of World Records 2002 edition, and the Dead Sea Scrolls in Ancient Hebrew. Backwards. Now, writing Hebrew backwards would actually be frontwards because Hebrew is right to left already, so it, it'd, be, uh, it'd be correct. But, I mean, who checks these things? I mean, who's checking for spelling errors to make sure this guy is actually doing this correctly? I mean, someone watching him, or did he write a program? I don't get this one. I mean, I could say I wrote War and Peace 
you know, in, in Ugaritic Sanskrit backwards. Who's going to check me? But apparently he made it into the book with that. The heaviest weight dangled from a swallowed sword. Okay, put the swallowed sword in your mouth, put a rope around it, and, dang, and dangle some weight. 55 pounds by Thomas Blackthorne in 2009. Apparently this guy also was in the Guinness Book of World Records for the smallest brain, too. But... Um, the most live rattlesnakes, live rattlesnakes, held in, in, in the mouth by their tails without any assistance. I mean, picture this. This guy picks up rattlesnakes, puts them in his mouth. Ten. Ten rattlesnakes. Now, wouldn't you be like, like to be the official recorder of this guy? Wouldn't you like to be that guy after he gets them out and goes, Ah, oh, I did it. You could go, uh, Actually, can you do that again? My stopwatch is broken. But uh, crazy. Longest time to hold your breath underwater. 18 minutes, 32 seconds. By uh, Caroline Meyer of Brazil. Apparently she was not human. Probably a dolphin or something. 18 minutes and 30... The funny thing is, they put in parentheses, the longest time holding your breath underwater voluntarily. So apparently there's a record for involuntary... Um, we all want to be known for something. We all want to establish some sort of greatness in life. But when it comes to greatness, what does the Bible say is greatness? When we look at the Old Testament, we think of lots of great people uh, in the Old Testament history. We think of people like Abraham and Sarah, Ruth, David, Solomon. Uh, there are lots of great men and women of the Old Testament. What does the Bible say when it comes to greatness? One of the greatest men in the Old Testament was a man by the name of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet, and he did some great things in his life. He, he uh, by the word of the Lord, uh, would, would tell people that, that there was no, going to be no rain for three years. And then God sent him during this famine to a, to a brook where he was fed by ravens. And then God sent him after the brook sent him after the brook had had dried up. He went to this woman's house, this widow's house in Zarephath, lived off of her for a while, and then her son dies, and Elijah raises this widow's son from the death from the dead. Then God promises rain, and he goes up on on the top of Mount Carmel, and he denounces 450 prophets by setting up this altar, pouring water all over it, and, and seeing God bring down fire on His altar and not theirs. He, he was one of two men who did not die in our history. Not just Old Testament history, in all of history. He is one of two men who did not die. Enoch was the other. Elijah was a great man. But what we find here in, in our passage, Mark chapter 1, is that John the Baptist is even greater than Elijah. Look at chapter 1, verse 2 of Mark. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judah was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. 
John was clothed with camel hair, camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. The reason I want to compare John the Baptist to Elijah is because when John the Baptist came, the people saw him as a type of Elijah. He wore similar clothing. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, you'll find that he wore similar clothing to Elijah. He didn't live in extravagant means. He wasn't out there to proclaim his name or to make his name great. He was bringing a message that was greater than him. And what we'll find here in the first uh, several verses, verses 2 through 6, is that John the Baptist is greater than Elijah. The first way that we see that John the Baptist is greater than Elijah is that Elijah prophesied about truth. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of prophecy. See, Elijah was back in his day, he was talking on behalf of God, but look what we find in verse 2, that, we, that John the Baptist was actually a fulfillment of that prophecy. This is a prof, prophecy by Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist that Isaiah the prophet is referring to. You'll also find the same prophecy in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. John the Baptist is greater than Elijah because he is not just prophesying. He is a fulfillment of prophecy. But he's also greater than Elijah because he has a greater message than Elijah. That's what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 7. He was saying, there has been no prophet who is greater than John the Baptist. None. Because he had a greater message. He was proclaiming the message of the kingdom. He was proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Elijah was, was proclaiming messages that were from God but not this great of a message that John the, John the Baptist has. And so John the Baptist had a greater message. In fact, it's proved by the number of followers that he had. Did you notice that in verse 5? And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. This was a huge crowd that came out to him in the wilderness. Now, why would John be baptizing in the wilderness? Because we find in verse 4 that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance and and then it says that all these people were coming to him to be baptized. Why would he be baptizing in the wilderness? Well, I think first of all, he had to be in the wilderness because that's what the prophecy said. That's where they where it said that he would be. Look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness or the desert. This was an area that was about a mile away from Jerusalem and so you'd have to go quite a ways in order to get out to this place. It was near the Jordan River. And so he could baptize out, baptize out in the wilderness where there was water, next to the Jordan River. And that's what we find him doing. And it was customary in that day for 
a messenger to go before a king and make sure that the path was straight because their roads were a lot like our roads. They were terrible. And so someone had to go before them and make sure that they were in good condition. There were no uh, traps or, or any uh, terrible situations that the king would come upon. So he would go first to make sure that everything was set for the king when he came behind him, but also to proclaim a message for the king. And that's exactly what we find John the Baptist doing. He's proclaiming a message to the Jewish people, a message of baptism by the confession of sins. And and basically this baptism that he was performing was not something that had been instituted as far as within a local church. Because at this time, obviously Jesus hadn't even come yet. He was alive, but he hadn't started his public ministry. So we don't even have a church at this point. So... So he's doing baptism really in advance of the symbol that would come that Jesus would institute for the local church. So that's what John was doing. That was his task. His primary task, though, was not to baptize. His primary task was to preach. And we see that in verses 3, 4, and 7. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So this is what he's doing. He's proclaiming a message. This was his, his task. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Look down to verse 7. And he, John the Baptist, was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is greater than I. So John the Baptist came to preach. The content of his message was one of of repentance. He He was calling for repentance. John would not allow anyone to be baptized unless they had already had forgiveness of sins. Let me show you that quickly in Matthew chapter 3. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 3. Because what happens is John the Baptist has some Pharisees coming to him and and, uh, John says, no, I I will not allow you to be baptized. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, John, John's primary task was not to baptize. He was making sure that people were repenting of their sins. And no one could come for baptism unless they had done that. Now, this was not baptism that produced forgiveness of sins, and that's why I say that you had to that had to proceed, that forgiveness of sins had to come first. And this baptism was simply just like our baptism, it was an outward confession of what they already believed. Notice in verse five what the result, Mark chapter one, notice the result of John's work. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized in the Jordan River confessing their sins. The first result was that he gained a following. He gained a following. Now why would John receive such a huge following? Why would so many people come out of their way away from the big city of Jerusalem out into the wilderness to listen to this guy speak? Well, if you remember... When before Jesus had come, there had been no prophecy for 400 years. Malachi was the last one to have spoken any word directly from God. 
That was Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. So 400 years of silence. These people are thirsting for the Word of God. They are looking uh, desperately for it. And so John is that man speaking on behalf of God. The other result of John's ministry, John's work here, is repentance and obedience. We see at the end of verse 5 that they were confessing their sins. They were being baptized in the Jordan River. One of the very first evidences that we can give to the fact that we are truly followers of God is that we are baptized. That we follow God in scriptural baptism. And so that's what these people were doing. Immediately after they were confessing their sins, they were coming to Him for baptism. I want to take a few minutes to talk about the mode of baptism because this is highly debated in our day. In fact, you, you, I'm sure you know people who, who have been baptized in different ways than, than what the Bible teaches. And so I think it would be valuable for each of us to have an understanding of what the Scripture teaches on baptism. Now, there are several different modes of baptism. Some people would, would uh, do baptism by effusion, that is, pouring. And they say that this relates to the pouring of the Holy Spirit on the believer and so that it would be scriptural to pour water onto a person after they're saved. Others believe in aspersion, that is, the sprinkling. Cleansing of the blood of Christ is the idea of the sprinkling of the blood in the Old Testament offerings. And so they would just sprinkle water on a person who has been saved, and in some cases on infants. But I want to prove from, to you from this text that baptism is only by immersion in the Scriptures. It is only by dipping. Look at verse. Look again at verse 5. In the middle of the verse, halfway down there, it says, and they were being baptized by Him, notice, in the Jordan River. And look down to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. Did you notice that? Immediately coming up out of the water. Now, the idea that John the Baptist and Jesus went down into the water waist deep and John is pouring water on him seems a little bit silly, doesn't it? Or that he's sprinkling water on him. Why go down to the water to do that? And that is because baptism is by immersion. In fact, the word baptized in the Greek language, both the Greek New Testament and the translation of the, of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, both use the word baptize. And every time that it's used, it means to immerse. There's never a case where it means to sprinkle or to pour. Not just in the case of people, but they also use... Um, baptize is always used... To immerse. Now, there are other words in the Greek language to refer to sprinkling and pouring. In fact, what you have is, is the, word, um, the, the word sprinkle in the, in the Greek language is used four times in the New Testament. Every time it's used in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews to, to apply um, blood to the altar. So it's some sort of sprinkling. It's never referred to in, in the case of baptism as we think about it. The word that, they, that is used for pouring in the Greek language is only used once, and that's in Luke. And it's referring to pouring out oil. So it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with the, the ordinance of baptism. So the word itself, baptism, 
means immersion. Every time it's used, it means immersion. So when we say baptism by immersion, we're really being redundant, aren't we? We're saying immersing by immersing. It's the same thing. There's no such thing as baptism by sprinkling when it comes to the Scriptures. That is a, a, um, uh, that is, those are two opposites. They do not agree. And so what I would suggest to you is if you'd like another passage that, that proves that baptism is by going under the water, by being immersed, look at Acts chapter 8, verse 38 in your free time. Acts chapter 8, verse 38. That's the, the Ethiopian eunuch, remember? And they went down into the water. They had to find some water in order for this man to be baptized. So baptism is by immersion. This is what John the Baptist was doing. This is what uh, the disciples did as they began the church. And this is what our church does when we baptize as well. Now when we come to verse 6 of Mark chapter 1, we, we see John's look. What did he look like? Well, we see that he is a man that was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Now John's clothing would have reminded the people of Israel of Elijah, the prophet, whom they expected to come before the Messiah. And he had this diet of wild honey, which could easily be found in the wilderness and locusts. And his diet was in keeping with the status of a lifelong Nazarite. Remember, Samson was a Nazarite. He, he took this Nazarite vow that he could not touch honey. He could not touch a dead body that, uh, that he could not cut his hair. Those are the three things. And so the basic appearance that you, you picture in your mind of John the Baptist is not one of extravagance. He's not a flashy guy. He's not looking to draw attention to himself. It was his message that gained the converts. It was that he was speaking on behalf of God. Not his appearance or his method. It was his message. So Elijah was a great man, but John the Baptist was greater. Jesus says, there is no one who has come before John the Baptist, who is greater than John. He is the greatest up until this time. But what we also find in this passage, verses 7-12, through 12, is that while John the Baptist is great, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than John. Look at verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. That is John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. What you see there in that prophecy is that while that is talking about John the Baptist, who is that prophecy really about? It's about Jesus Christ. It's about who John is preparing the way for. It's not ultimately about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is simply a messenger. John the Baptist is making ready the way of the Lord. It's really about the, the Lord. That's why it says, prepare your way. Make ready the way of the Lord. John's task was to prepare the way for Jesus just like a messenger would do for a king. He was doing it in order to remove the hindrances, hindrances in the heart of the people so that they could be ready to receive the coming Messiah. So John prepares the way. This is how he does it. Okay? He doesn't go in and straighten off some roads he goes and makes sure that these people are repenting and asking for forgiveness of their sins. 
And really, what we find in verses 4-8, through eight, John's message that brings this huge crowd to him is not because of John the Baptist, but as I said earlier, it's because of his message. And that message is about Jesus Christ. So Jesus is greater than John because the prophecy is really about Jesus, because the message that, that John brings is really about Jesus. <clears throat> but thirdly, Jesus is better than John because... Jesus is a better servant than John. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. He was a better servant than John. He stooped to a level that no one would expect him to stoop to. Why would Jesus, the King of the universe, come and be baptized? Was He being baptized for the forgiveness of sins too? Did he need to obey God in this way because he had just received salvation? That's the way we think of baptism. It's it's a response to what God has done in us. Why would Jesus be baptized? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we find that John the Baptist actually has that same thinking. He's saying, Jesus, why are you coming to me to be baptized? Why would you do this? And what he finds out is that John Jesus... Christ, the Messiah, was on earth to identify with sinners. He was there to stand in their place. And so what he's doing in in the symbol of baptism is identifying with sinners. He's showing that, listen, I will stoop and do something like this, not in order to infuse righteousness upon me. Of course, our baptism isn't that way either. It's not in order to show that I profess that I have faith in God because I am God. This act of baptism was a necessary part of righteousness that he secured for sinners. He was just simply saying, I identify with this sinner. I identify with these people who are sinners, with you and me. And his baptism looked forward to that time when he would die, when he would be buried. That's why we we dip. He would be buried and that he would rise again. Jesus was looking forward to that time and He wanted to identify Himself with sinners. So Jesus was a better servant. But also in verses 10 and 11, we find that He he had a better confirmation than, than John did. John's confirmation was this prophecy that He would come and prepare the way for Jesus. But notice in verses 10 and 11 that Jesus doesn't just have a scriptural confirmation. He has a direct revelation from heaven, from God. Verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven, came out of the heavens. You are my beloved Son and you I am well pleased. John received special revelation from God, but Jesus received an even greater revelation. God Himself speaking, saying, This is my Son. See Him here? In Him I am well pleased. This is a public affirmation of Christ, of Jesus being the Messiah. That He is the Messiah. And He is the Promised One. God Himself is saying it. That the Spirit has come on Him and now He is the King. He is the One who who should reign over all. And what we find is that in verse 1, Mark refers to Jesus as the Son of God. But then here in verse 11, we have God Himself affirming 
that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. He says, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now before we move on, I want to talk a little bit about the end of verse 10. It says that the Spirit like him, or like a dove, descended upon him. What is this Holy Spirit? Or what is the Spirit? Is this the Holy Spirit? And if so, why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit? It's not that he 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 takes on salvation in some way like we do, and we need the Holy Spirit. So what is this talking about? Well, what this is is if you remember from our study in Joshua, this is this this is the theocratic anointing. Theocratic simply meaning that he is the God-ordained ruler of that time. And what we find here is that Jesus now is the God-ordained ruler of all time. Beginning here, when He started in His public ministry, the Spirit came upon Him, and now He was recognized by people as the King, the ruler of the theocratic kingdom. This theocratic anointing started with Moses. It was a special ministry of the Holy Spirit that God put on the person who was the head of the kingdom and it simply enabled him to do his function as king or as ruler. Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 17, the spirit who is upon you, this is God speaking. Moses ended up being the king in effect. Stephen called him a ruler. Joshua, remember in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Same idea that he's receiving the spirit so that he can perform his function as king. The judges all received the Spirit. Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, others. It would often say in the book of Judges, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. Saul, King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 10. We find that he was changed into another man, that God changed his heart and He used him to perform his acts mightily. But... When we look at the life of Saul, we find that this man was not a believer. He was, re- he was unregenerate. So this Holy Spirit cannot be the same sense that we receive the Holy Spirit, that is regeneration, salvation, because what happens is at the end of Saul's life, you remember when, when David was rising in power, what happened? 1 Samuel 16.14 says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, departed from Saul... And did what? It came upon David. So that cannot be salvation, can it? Because once the Spirit comes and does that work of salvation, does the Spirit ever leave us? Is there ever a time when we can say, well, the Spirit is no longer with us? So what the Scriptures are referring to, and I think it's in keeping with what we see here in Mark, is that when the Spirit comes on these men in these cases, it is that they are the, the head of the kingdom. They are the ruler of the kingdom. You remember David in Psalm chapter 51 after he had sinned with Bathsheba? He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy salvation. Do not cast me away. And what does he say? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, was David praying that he would not lose his salvation? God, please, don't, don't unsave me. Don't put me in a spot where I'm no longer saved. No. What was he doing? He was saying, don't take away your spirit like you did to Saul. I don't want to be in that position. David obviously was a regenerate man. So this Holy Spirit is is put upon that person who is ahead 
of the, the theocratic kingdom. Solomon also came out of him, and then here we find it coming upon Jesus at his baptism. So Jesus was greater than John the Baptist because he was a greater servant and because he had a, a greater confirmation from God directly from heaven. So let's move on to our last two verses. And we find that Jesus is greater than John because he actually has angels ministering to him. Verse 12, Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now Mark is forceful in his writing. He's saying that the Spirit sent him out in the wilderness to be tempted. And what we find when the, with the way that Mark is speaking is that, that there is now a, a confrontation between the spiritual realm or inside the spiritual realm between that which is uh, godly and that which is ungodly. We have Jesus going against Satan. And Jesus experienced this type of opposition. It didn't start here, did it? Remember when he was born? What happened? Herod was wanting to kill him. So Jesus experienced this type of opposition from the time he was born. And now, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, this same opposition abounds. I think what Mark is trying to show us is that even though Jesus is the authority, Jesus has authority over all things, as we saw last week, there is much opposition to His authority, isn't there? And throughout His life, He would experience increasing opposition to the point where they would kill Him. So from the time He was born to the time He died, He experienced this opposition. And this op- opposition was taking place not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. And I think what Mark is referring to when he says that he was out in the, with the wild beast is simply that he was out in the wilderness where no one was around. He was completely solitary. All he had around him were wild beasts. And what I think this highlights is the fact that Jesus had to endure incredible temptation. When is it that it is hard that when is it for you that it is hardest to obey God? To say no to temptation. Have you thought about that? It is for me, and I think you would agree that it's when you're hungry. You ever come home and you're hungry and and just things that normally wouldn't bother you bother you because you're so hungry. Or when you're angry. When you're angry about something, something happened at work or school or whatever. Or when you're lonely. This is what Jesus was. He was completely lonely. He was hungry. Remember, he didn't eat for 40 days. Those are the t- And when you're tired, that's the fourth one. Remember, like halt, halt, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Those are the times when you're most susceptible to sin. Jesus was susceptible to sin here as a human, but because He's God, He cannot sin. But what it did for us is it highlights that Jesus did have to experience all the temptation that we experience and that He was unlike us in so many ways because He stood up under temptation. Not because because He had some supernatural blood with him, in Him or something like that. He was completely human. But it was because He's God. 
and that only God can stand up against temptation, that only God can, can, uh, can stand up against that type of opposition. We find out later in John's life, we'll see this in, as we go through Mark, that John the Baptist dies for the sake of the Gospel. And Jesus also dies for the sake of the Gospel so that it can grow and so that it can, uh, so that it can flourish. So what is greatness? John was a great man, but Jesus was greater. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be known for greatness? Turn back to Luke chapter 7 because I want to show you that you can be great. Before John, there was no one greater than he. Look with me at verse 27 again. Luke chapter 7. This is the one about whom it is written. This is Jesus speaking. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John was a great man because he pronounced the kingdom, the coming kingdom, that they could receive this offer of grace from from Christ Himself. But Jesus says, you can be greater than John the Baptist. You can be greater than John the Baptist just like Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And the way that you do that is by taking part in the life of Jesus. By being in Christ, as Paul would often say. Being in Christ. Allowing Christ to to put on you His robe of righteousness. Jesus says, you can be greater than John the Baptist if you are the least in the kingdom. Everyone who is in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. you know why? Because John was proclaiming the kingdom, but those of us who are in the kingdom that have received salvation in the New Testament era, we are greater than him because we are a part of that kingdom. We will one day share in that kingdom the thousand-year reign of Christ where Christ will rule with an iron scepter. John was greater than Elijah, but we can be greater than John if we are in Christ. Have you made a decision to follow Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you taken part in the kingdom? Next week, that kingdom is going to be offered to you when we look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That's all you have to do. You don't have to wait till next week when we look at that offer. You can take that offer now. Everyone who repents will receive forgiveness of sins. So that's all you have to do. Recognize your sin. Turn from it and believe that Christ did what He said He did and that He is who He who the Bible says that He is. And you can share in that great kingdom and be greater than John. Let's pray. Lord, again, we are amazed at Your grace. When we consider 
what we deserve compared to what we have, how can we complain about our lives? How can we ever raise our fist to You at what You've given to us, whether good or whether we see it as evil? How can we do that when You have been so gracious to us? We deserve nothing but eternal punishment and yet You have given us Your Son, Jesus Christ. You've given us Your Word. You've given us Your church. You've allowed us to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. And we know that You have also promised that we can one day share in that glory forever. We will be forever able to enjoy the graces that are Yours unhindered by our sin or our foolishness. We will forever be with You. We look forward to that coming kingdom that Christ has promised to all those who repent and believe. And we pray that our lives would be a radiant testimony to Your grace. That others would be able to see within us the love that we have for You and the radically changed lives that You are 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 working within us. Lord, we need Your grace. And we cannot live without it. And so I pray that You would grant to us Your grace as we seek to live for You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.